When Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he learned the power and the love of God. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we learn lessons from the Exodus and God's great rescue. We are in episode 56 of our study, Exodus, God's Great Rescue. And now the the people of God are at the base of Mount Sinai. God has given the Ten Commandments, and then he's telling Moses uh, how to develop case law around those Ten Commandments, and then he's giving instructions for this thing called the tabernacle. And inside the tabernacle, so far we've looked at the Ark of the Covenant, so that's in the Holy of Holies. And then we've talked about the, the table of presence, which has the, uh, oh, what do you call it? The, the bread. Yeah, it's the bread and the, the flagon and the flask and all that sort of thing. And it indicates the presence of God on this table. Because if you remember, um, the, the way that they knew that God truly loved them was the fact that he brought the 10 plagues to Egypt and allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt. And then he helped them cross the sea. And then he gave them food to eat and water to drink. And now they are wandering in the promised land, waiting for God's direction as far as where to go. And what God wants to teach them and train them is to Um, understand who he is and his great power and what he has done for them. And so each of these things uh, that they carry around with them have in them uh, a tie-in to why God wants them to remember because he wants them to remember how God was faithful to them. Um, This is such a great lesson for all of us that God has been faithful to us also. And um, what are the things that you have that you point to or remember to remember God's great love for you? Those are the things that you, that you keep um, that might be some sort of artifact, although I doubt it. Um, you're not supposed to worship the artifact, but it doesn't mean you can't have an artifact, obviously, because the temple and all the things in it is an artifact, is a, uh, an object. But it's there to point to the creator, the one that did the work. Um, And all religions across the world have um, objects, but oftentimes they begin to worship the objects and not the, the creator behind the objects. And that's what God doesn't want. He wants him and him alone to be worshiped. The objects are okay, like he's giving us some objects here but they're not to be worshipped. We're to separate the object from the creator of the objects of of all life, of all all things. All right, so um, we talked about the table of presence. And uh, if you'll remember, what is in Psalm uh, 23? Thou preparest a table before me in thy presence. And it's, uh, you know, we even see this kind of in Psalm 23, uh, where... Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. So in other words, uh, this table kind of even finds its way in the Psalms. But it's not just the table. There's also one other thing. It's called the lampstand. Let's just take a look at that. That's Exodus 25, beginning of verse 31. Make a lampstand of pure gold. Hammer out its base and shaft and make its flower-like cups, buds, and blossoms of one piece with them. 
Six branches are to extend from the sides of the lampstand, three on one side and three on the other. Three cups shaped like almond flowers with buds and blossoms are to be on one branch, three on the next branch, and the same for all six branches extending from the lampstand. And on the lampstand, there are to be four cups shaped like almond flowers and buds and blossoms. One bud shall be under the first pair of branches extending from the lampstand, a second bud bud under the second pair, and a third bud under the third pair, six branches in all. The buds and the branches shall all be of one piece with the lampstand, hammered out of pure gold. Then make its seven lamps and set them up on it so that they light the space in front of it. Its wicks, trimmers, and trays are to be of pure gold. A talent of pure gold is to be used for the lampstand and all of these accessories. See that you make them according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Wow. Wow. So God, (laughs) he gives kind of generic stuff, but man, on this lampstand, he just goes all to town and says exactly what it's supposed to look like. So much so that he gave him a pattern on top of the mountain that he was supposed to follow. Uh, So this lampstand, this remembrance of God, the light that God provides, uh, is is very, very finely described. It's probably more described than anything else that we see uh, up to this point. Um, we, we saw the ark that, uh, that uh, rescued Noah and his family and how detailed that description was. Uh, we see the ark of the covenant and how detailed that is and the, the bread of presence, the table of presence, how detailed that was. But this lampstand um, is quite intricate quite intricate. So um, if you look at, um, uh, now in Hebrew, the, the word lampstand is menorah, menorah. So uh, you've heard of the menorah. It's a Hebrew word and it exists today in Hebrew temples, uh, Hebrew places of gatherings. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, let's see if I can find a picture of it. Um, yeah, this is a menorah. And it's pretty much as described by Moses. It has the, the cups and the buds and the seven places where you put the oil and the lamps and the wicker and all that sort of thing. So this thing lights uh, the area that's outside of the Holy of Holies. Uh, and this is, um, every, every menorah looks pretty much like this because God gave such a detailed description of it. It's, um, it's got buds. It's got the buds on each side. It's got the seven lamps. It's got the buds along the shaft of the menorah, um, the main stand of the menorah. Um, anyway, that's, uh, that is what God told um, Moses to build. Uh, what's the significance of the menorah? Um, I think that it is that God tells them to build it because it brings light. And if you can see, there's just so much light. There's the seven, right, which is seven days of creation. Seven is a holy number in Hebrew. Uh, it is a, it's a number of completion. Uh, anything, the, the big numbers of, of holiness in the Hebrew world are seven, right? Because that's the seven days of creation. 40, because that was the 40 days that it rained on the ark. 
Um, there's a couple other 40s that show up all throughout the Old Testament. Those are probably the two big ones. But seven is a number of completeness. And so this menorah also indicates completeness and it brings light. So it's complete light. So it's a remembrance. To me, it's a remembrance of the creation of God, that he created the world in seven days and that that is um, to be remembered also because that while the Israelites were not in existence at creation, that that story of creation, how God created the world and then rested on the seventh day, that was brought forward uh, into their remembrances. And so to me, that's probably the biggest one that we've seen so far that has seven in it. Um, so that's this, that's this, that's the, the menorah, but there's, I'm sure if you went into uh, Hebrew theology, the Talmud and all that sort of thing, you'd find all sorts of meanings behind all of these things. Maybe I should do that at some point because that is kind of sexy, isn't it? But I want to get to the tabernacle. So let's just get to Exodus 26 because um, talk about detailed. Make the tabernacle. This is uh, Exodus 26, beginning of verse 1. Make the tabernacle with 10 curtains of finely twisted linen and blue, purple, and scarlet yarn with cherubim woven into them by a skilled worker. All the curtains are to be of the same size, 28 cubits long and 4 cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together and do the same with the other five. Make loops of blue material along the edges of the end of the curtain in one set and do the same with the end curtain in the other set. Make 50 loops on one curtain and 50 loops on the end curtain of the other set, with the loops opposite each other. Then make 50 gold clasps and use them to fasten the curtains together so that the tabernacle is a unit. All right, we'll keep reading. Verse 7, make the curtain of goat hair for the tent over the tabernacle, 11 altogether. All 11 curtains are to be the same size. 30 cubits long and four cubits wide. Join five of the curtains together into one set and the other six into another set. Fold the sixth curtain double at the front of the tent. Make 50 loops along the edge of the end curtain in one set and also along the edge of the end curtain in the other set. Then make 50 bronze clasps and put them in the loops to fasten the tent together as a unit. As for the additional length of the tent curtains, the half curtain that is left over is to hang down at the rear of the tabernacle. The tent curtains will be a cubit longer on both sides. What is left will hang over the sides of the tabernacle so as to cover it. Make for the tent a covering of ram skins dyed red and over that a covering of the other durable leather. Make upright frames of acacia wood for the tabernacle. Each frame is to be 10 cubits long and a cubit and a half wide, with two projections set parallel to each other. Make all of the frames of the tabernacle in this way. Make 20 frames for the south side of the tabernacle and make 40 silver bases to go under them, two bases for each frame, one under each projection. For the other side, the north side of the tabernacle make 20 frames and 40 silver bases, two under each frame. Make six frames for the far end, that is the west end of the tabernacle, and make two frames for the corners at the far end. 
At these two corners, they must be double from the bottom all the way to the top and fitted into a single ring. And both shall be like that. So there'll be eight frames and 16 silver bases, two under each frame. Also make crossbars of acacia wood, five for the frames on one side of the tabernacle, five for those on the other side, and five for the frames on the west at the far end of the tabernacle. The center crossbar is to extend from end to end at the middle of the frames. Overlay the frames with gold and make gold rings to hold the crossbars. Also overlay the crossbars with gold. Set up the tabernacle according to the plan shown you on the mountain. Make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. Hang it with gold hooks on four posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and standing on four silver bases. Hang the curtain from the clasps and place the Ark of the Covenant behind the curtain. The curtain will separate the holy place from the most holy place. Uh, put the atonement cover on the Ark of the Covenant law in the most holy place. Place the table outside the curtain on the north side of the tabernacle and put the lampstand opposite on the south side. For the entrance to the tent, make a curtain of blue, purple, and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen. The work of an embroiderer, make gold hooks for this curtain and five posts of acacia wood overlaid with gold and cast five bronze bases for them. Okay, so, <laughs> oh my goodness. This is um, this is quite detailed so far. Um, he's talking about the sides of the tabernacle, the ends of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies curtains, the roof, the sides, and the placement of the objects in the tabernacle. Um, and uh, and this is um, <laughs> this is what he talks about now. Um, when we visited in Texas once, Jennifer and I, not recently, I mean, I mean not, not too long ago, it's been within the last five years, there was a church in Texas that had on their property built the Holy of Holies. Uh, they had taken the dimensions here from Exodus and they had kind of reconstructed what the Holy of Holies must have looked like. And they put it on their property and you could actually go into all of these things and see uh, the Holy of Holies um, with all of the, the all the stuff in it. Now, um, I guess I wanted to bring this up because uh, there's other stuff that goes in the Holy of Holies. Uh, there's other stuff. Uh, no, there's not anything else that goes in the Holy of Holies and in the tabernacle. But in this area, this tented area, this clothed area, there's some other things that go in to it also, um, which is all kind of really exciting. Um, but I guess I just wanted to say that this is really fascinating that God would provide so much detail. And I want to I want to show a picture uh, for those of you that can see the picture of what that would have looked like. Um, and as you can see from this picture, there's the the curtains that exist all the way around. Um, and they're uh, on poles, and they create an area, which is the early kind of form of the temple, right, that gets built in Jerusalem. 
and um, people would go in through the one edge, the south end, and they would go into this area, and then they would see the tabernacle, uh, the tented tabernacle at the very end. And then in the tent, tented tabernacle, um, it talks about how when you walk in, on the left-hand side would be the menorah, and on the right-hand side would be the bread of presence, and then you walk through, and you get to the Holy of Holies, and as you enter into the, tent, uh, the Holy of Holies, there you'll find the Ark of the Covenant. So all of this is dictated in extreme detail to God as far as what he wants. And um, we, we kind of touched this upon this yesterday a little bit, but uh, the whole purpose of this, I mean, this is a lot of wealth that's demonstrated. You have to have fine linen that's embroidered with all sorts of cherubim and all the gold that's on all of this stuff. I would love to calculate in today's cost of gold how much all of this is, but it would probably be in the tens of millions of dollars. That's what I'm guessing. Maybe even a hundred million dollars, but but probably in today's world, it's maybe ten, tens of millions of dollars. Um, and this is all for God. This is all of the people of Israel pulling together their resources to create this for God. And he gives specific direction as far as what he wants and all of this. Um, now, a couple things about that. First of all, is that the Christian church has been freed from this. We are no longer um, bound to the temple in Jerusalem. All of this ends up being in Jerusalem. And they build a temple, and it's pretty much the same floor plan. Uh, and they build that temple in Jerusalem. But we are not bound to that anymore. Because when Jesus died on the cross, the the temple, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And uh, now people can access the Holy of Holies through Jesus. Jesus is the Holy of Holies. And because all of the world mm, history goes through Jesus... And because Jesus now is the ultimate temple, uh, we do not have to have a temple anymore. So, in the New Testament, as they start building churches, um, one of the things that they started to look at was how do we build a church? Should we start following the Old Testament uh, tabernacle and build the churches like the tabernacle? And uh, that would be a very um, good way to consider it. Um, if you look in some of the early church designs, like the Hagia Sophia, which is a big church, it's a round church. It's a very round church. That was how they dedicated um, their, their resources to God. They built this huge, round Hagia Sophia uh, church that ruled Christianity for a thousand years. Um, as Christianity moved into Europe, church design became what they called the cathedral design. And what's interesting about the cathedral design is you look at the cathedral from the top, it's in the shape of a cross. And the Holy of Holies, this, um, this altar that has God's presence on it, is in the center of the cross. That is the shape and the design of churches that kind of followed Europe. Uh, but, um, but none of these are... Uh, commanded or dictated by God. Church design today has a lot of flexibility. 
because the design of the church is not something that is dictated by God. So in the early, early, early church, um, and did, we talked about this when we studied uh, New Testament. I can't remember. It was John. I think we studied it. But in the New Testament, uh, for the first 300 years or so, they didn't build cathedrals. Uh, they, they, they mostly met in house churches. And house churches were basically houses that were converted into churches. And there were very many of them. And they kind of had a place where they did baptism, a place where they did study. Uh, and if you go to Acts 2.42, uh, the, the purpose of worship on Sunday morning, actually be on any day, was they gathered together for the apostles' teaching, for fellowship, right, for breaking of bread, and for prayer. Uh, and then they pooled their resources later in Acts 2 um, to, to distribute to anyone that had need. So those, to me, are the five primary things that the church did from early on. Apostles' teaching, breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer and then giving the resources to the people around. So how much of that is in this temple? Well, we see that in the Holy of Holies, that they could do teaching in this area. They could have people sit down and they could be teaching. Um, obviously, they've got the bread of presence there. They have fellowship. Uh, they did prayer here, and they probably pooled their resources and gave to anyone that had need in the community. So these are these are kind of five timeless things that... Even the Old Testament and the New Testament church kind of bridge and do. Um, is there a proper way to design a church? And if you were to if you were to try to please God, what what would that church look like? Well, Paul talks about it, and he says, "Listen, if you really, really, really want to build a church that is pleasing to God, then submit yourself as a living sacrifice, pure and blameless before God." In other words. The church now exists as a people. It's no longer a building. It's no longer the Holy of Holies. The church is, is people. And um, what pleases God, the new tabernacle, if you will, uh, in the New Testament is not a place uh, and it's not a specific design. It is people. And sometimes we as a church forget that. We put all of our emphasis on what the church should look like and what materials and, and all that sort of thing. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that because that is amazing. And we have some beautiful churches. Um, and some, <laughs> go back into you know European history and see some of the cathedrals and they're just stunning and beautiful. But the church is the people. And where do the people worship is in a place called a sanctuary or called, uh, called a church. Um, and there's designs, and each of the pieces of the design remind us of different things of Christian history, and that's not a bad thing either, but the church itself, and what pleases God more than anything is not the structure of the church, but the people, that they live lives holy and blameless. But when we come together on Sunday morning, which we do on Sunday morning to worship, the things that we do in worship are those things that... Um, that we come together and, and use our time, talent, and treasure to, to praise and worship God. And remember, there's no, there is no fixed thing that says what it has to be because Jesus has redeemed us from all of that. Um, but in the Old Testament, here at the temple, uh, God dictated every single aspect of it to the people. Now, 
Why did God dictate? I have no idea. But he did. I'm on Sinai. He told Moses, this is exactly how I want this to look. It's exactly how I want it to look. But uh, in the New Testament, he gives no instructions whatsoever. And I think that is kind of shocking, don't you? If God gives this much detail in the Old Testament, and then he says that everything has been fulfilled by Jesus, and Jesus is now the new temple, if you will, then why didn't he give you know, instructions to the New Testament church as to what it should look like? And I think the answer is, is because it's no longer necessary. We don't need to follow any sort of design. What we need to do is follow Jesus. And if we follow Jesus and follow his words and be his church like we're supposed to do, then everything else kind of really is adiaphora. So um, we, we've, we, that's hard because, you know, over time we develop traditions and we develop looks and designs and things like that. Uh, and we think this is what pleases God. Um, I read a book. I'll, I'll end with this. Uh, as part of seminary, I read a book. Um, about, it's by Chinua Achuba, uh, was the name of the book. Um, I'm trying to remember the name. The, uh, the, that was the author, but uh, Things Fall Apart was the name of the book. And it talks about a missionary who is a European missionary going into Africa and trying to interface with Africans by bringing European style and tradition and worship and all these different things into Africa. And of course, part of worship Part of worship is us giving back to God. So if, if the Europeans come in and they say, okay, this is how you have to worship, but the Africans don't have any context of that sort of thing. They don't play any musical instruments. They don't play, um, you know, they don't, they don't have any context to that. Then they don't get to participate in worship because that's, that is foreign to them. And so what happens eventually is that European people, when they come to Africa, they realize that they need to go into that culture and find out what that culture does and then try to mold and shape that into worship. And so they bring a lot of dancing. They bring a lot of drums. They bring a lot of the things that are endemic or or, um, built into that culture. And they say, okay, these are the things that you do well. Why don't you worship God with those things? And they do, and it's beautiful. And if you've ever been on an African missionary journey um, to some of these cultures, you can see how they've taken what they've grown up with and they've molded and shaped it into worship of God. And it is, it's culturally beautiful and it's kind of cool. And that's how, um, that's how they worship God. And each generation kind of has their own culture and what is important to them and how they should worship it should be it should come out of each i guess generation or population or people um because it truly needs it worship needs to be something that is the best of us that we give back to god and it shouldn't be foreign to us at all um this this is um this is difficult of course in the 20th century because there's so many different things going around the culture it's like how do we how do we uh, how do we give back to God what He's given to us? Like, what should it look like? And um, of course, that's the challenge for the 21st century church, isn't it? Um, anyway, I'm going way too long. Uh, I guess I just wanted to say that in the Old Testament, it's very very detailed. In the New Testament, God gives complete freedom in that. the The New Testament church is Jesus and His followers, and that's it.
And everything else after that is just kind of us trying to give our best back to God. All right, so um, I think I'll leave it there. Um, uh, why don't we go ahead and close in prayer? Gracious God, thank you for um, this incredible description uh, and keeping the Israelites safe as your people so that they could come to Jerusalem and bring us Jesus, who is ultimately who we follow and who we worship. Uh, be with us until we meet again. Keep us safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.